And then I had a King James. That wasn't me. <laughs> and then uh, I had my RSV from 1952, my NASB from 1971, my ESV from 2001. And it was those last two that I, I used as my study Bible. Those are my standard references. And the NASB and the ESV diverge, which is just shocking to me. We'll get to this section, and I, I'm going to give you both of, of the, the pieces, the, the both ways that they go. This is the very last verse in the whole thing, verse 33. I love this. You know, it, Isaiah pulls this rabbit out of the hat at the very end, and he leaves it just slightly ambiguous, and then modern scholars like do two very divergent things. And so while I'm digging through all this stuff about Isaiah, I run into another piece where these two scholars are arguing. And it's over, and we covered this weeks ago, it's over Isaiah's wife. We don't even know her name. We do not know her name. But there's a huge argument amongst scholars about what her title was. And it's fascinating to me that there's these people who are saying something that when you actually go and look that word up and all the other times it occurs in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way, there's two places where it occurs in the New Testament, and every other case, it means something different than what these people are saying it means. This one particular case, because of its, its being Isaiah, they're saying it means something different. And it's like, you, you guys are really on thin ice when you're, you're going out on this one. And we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit. So we, we know this woman existed, and she was the wife of Isaiah. Isaiah does not say, this is my wife. This woman is my wife. By, oh, by the way, there's fascinating. Um, the Muslims, who actually believe in Isaiah, they have a tradition that says her name was Ayah. Okay? We don't have that here. And, and the Jews don't have a tradition as to what her name was. But the Muslims have a tradition that says Isaiah's wife was Ayah. That was her name. Okay. Now, Isaiah says, he says of her that she was a prophetess. Okay, so right off she has this title. All right. So this, this piece was really interesting to me. But amongst these scholars, there's an argument if that means Isaiah's wife had the power of prophecy or if she was simply just Isaiah's wife and she was a prophetess because she was married to Isaiah. Okay, so this is, this is the argument between the, the two sets of scholars, all right? And... Um, if she was simply the wife of Isaiah, then that's all that would be said. But because the title prophetess is used, and Isaiah uses it, I mean, he's really clear. The scripture is clearly making the distinction in the case of Isaiah's wife. Isaiah is making that distinction right here. Now, here's the kicker. Every other case where the use of the word prophetess is used, Literally, the word in, in Hebrew is neb-iah, neb-iah, okay, in Hebrew. 
Every other case it's used in the Bible means a woman who was a prophet. She had the power of prophecy. Okay? And there's, there's multiple times where this occurs. All right? There's a, there's a fascinating argument in the modern church, by the way, about certain churches don't allow women to speak. And um, that's not what God says here, that certain women do have that power to be leaders in the church. And so that's what this is here. And Isaiah says his wife, had this, she was a prophet as well as him. So, I mean, this is like the celebrity couple, you know? I mean, you, you, you couldn't have a more powerful couple. That nowhere else, the, the king marries a woman and she becomes the queen, but she's in a lesser position because she's married into the, the title. In this case, it's the other way around. She had the title before she married Isaiah. Okay. In every other case where this title gets used, the woman is a prophet. Every other case. And so these modern scholars who are saying that Isaiah's wife is not a prophet, it's almost like they're making an exception in this particular case, that they're arguing something different. And it's like, I, I have a real hard time with that because that's not clearly what Isaiah is trying to say here about his wife. So in every other case where a prophet had a wife, by the way, and where the wife was not a prophet, the Hebrew simply states that the woman was the wife of the prophet. And this happens multiple times. Um, Jeremiah is the exception. He never got married. So he, he was celibate his entire life. But in every other case where a prophet had a wife, they refer to her as the wife of the prophet. In this case, Isaiah's wife is referred to as a prophetess. And it's, it's a very clear distinction. By the way, one of the Zechariah had a wife who was alive at the same time, the exact same time that this happens, okay? And Zechariah says, the wife of the prophet. In this case, Isaiah says the prophetess when he refers to his wife. So to me, it would be an extreme, extreme exception if the word neb-iah was used in the case of a woman who was not a prophet herself. And this was one of the other arguments that I got lost in. I lost like a day and a half digging through all the references and finding all these scholarly articles. And it's like, okay, what does it say? What is, what is clearly being, what does the scripture actually say? And uh, that's, that's my, my whole week, by the way, <laughs> before I came here to talk to you guys today. And th this was just over the passage that we're going to talk about today. Most of the passage has nothing to do with any of this. So let's go ahead and start at verse 18, okay? So, very decidedly different opening here. 
Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah reminds the people of God that the Lord waits upon them. The Lord receives glory by showing mercy to his people. And yet God is a God of justice, and God's people are blessed as they wait upon the Lord. So none of this should be of surprise to any of us. Isaiah affirms all of this in multiple passages. Isaiah reminds us of the greatness of our God. And Isaiah encourages all of us, all the people of God, to wait upon the Lord. So you have to imagine God is a God of justice. So he demands that sin be judged, that there should be judgment for this particular problem that exists. Sin has to be judged. And yet, at the same time, God has promised that he will have mercy and grace upon the people. And so there's this huge disconnect in, in the minds and in the lives of all these, these people at this time. And Isaiah keeps bringing this up over and over again and how to resolve this. And Isaiah is like cracking the door open on this whole problem. And that is what I, why Isaiah exists, to crack the door open. Let's go back, verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. God's people are meant to dwell in Zion. You have to remember, as Isaiah is telling the people this, they're getting carted off to exile. The siege of Jerusalem, it, it's, it's, it's really depressing to live. It's devastating that what is happening to the people of God at this time. And Isaiah is saying there's hope as they're being carted off to, to imprisonment in Assyria, by the Assyrians. And they, they lose, and they lose big. Jerusalem gets completely overwhelmed. The walls of the city are broken down. And Wild animals come and live in, inside the city because there's no people there. It is very devastating for them. Isaiah reminds the people that their hearts shall long for Zion and that God will hear their prayers. Verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. So here, verse 20, an interesting phrase, and it only occurs once in the Bible. And at the same time, it reminds us directly of Jesus, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. 
And it calls to mind the bread and the cup of communion for us. Jesus is our teacher, and all of God's people shall see Jesus. But here we have this one phrase where Isaiah says, the bread of affliction, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Sorry. And that phrase doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. And Isaiah says, you have a set of circumstances in this life, in the here and now. And that's not what you should be paying attention to. The thing that you should be paying attention to is beyond that. Verse 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. All of God's people will hear a voice of guidance directing our paths. Isaiah is promising the Holy Spirit to all of us here. God's Holy Spirit is the one that gives us direction, telling us whether to go left or to go right. And if you stop and think about what this means, when you come to a fork in the road, and the Holy Spirit says, go left. And you come to another fork in the road, and the Holy Spirit says, go left. And you come to another fork in the road, and the Holy Spirit says, go left. And you're going, oh, okay, so the answer is go left, right? And then you come to another fork in the road, and the Holy Spirit goes right. And you go, wait a second. It, and it's okay to do something different in the same set of circumstance once you pray over it. Because God will tell you which way you're supposed to go. Which way his will is supposed to tell you to go. And this is why you can do something different in the same set of circumstance. And this happens multiple times in the, in the New Testament. It happens over and over. Verse 22. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. And you will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, Be gone. And all of God's people will finally discard their idols. All of these are nothing more than created things, created by hand whether they are material things that exist or the illusions that we create for ourselves, God's presence will force us to cast aside all things that are not of our God. We don't tend to have idols this way, literally, in modern society. And yet, you hear it every night on the news, right? how this celebrity is doing this thing, or that celebrity is doing something different. And they talk about these people like, you should be doing what these people do. And that really bugs me when, when it gets to that point. There, there, there's nothing more useless than a celebrity telling you to use this facial cream or something. I, it just, that just, I, I, it, it blows my mind that anyone would think that that is going to sell something. 
verses 23 and 24. And he will give rain for the seed which you sow the ground, and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. I have to tell you a funny story. So on this particular day, a, a friend of mine was telling me thank you for speaking Jesus into his life from time to time which I, I think is funny because I don't think I'm doing anything special for, for him. And apparently it, he thinks it's special. And he told me about this. And um, so, so that was a very big surprise. And then he quotes this verse about, do not muzzle the ox. And I'm going, oh, great. I'm a cow now. And so my response to him was, moo. And so that's now a joke between he and I. Every time he, he sends me something, my response is, moo. And he laughs. We, we get a kick out of this. So th and this literally happened the day that I'm reading about the oxen. <laughs> so Isaiah gives us this promise of a very peaceful and bountiful scene. Even the animals enjoy the surplus of the harvest. And in the text here is the bread. You can hear the bread in the background there. It doesn't say that, but it's implied. It's a part of the imagery that you get from the grain. Let's keep going. Verse 25. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. And in the image of the living water, once again, you have the bread as the grain, and you have the living water. And they always come as a matched pair. Again, Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. But at that time, in your lives, the city is going to be coming down around you. And Isaiah is telling them, don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. So we have this image of Jesus in the bread and the living water, as well as the warning for those who are the tormentors of God's people, the ones who cause the towers to fall. Verse 26, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Again, we have this scene of peace and tranquility, the light of the moon as daylight and the sun shining clear and bright. God showers blessing on his people in that day. God brings his people peace and justice. Verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. 
burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. God is righteous in his anger here. He pronounces judgment on those who perpetrate sin on God's people. And God's anger is all enveloping, like the thick smoke of a fire. Verse 28. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. A new image here, like that of deep water while fording a deep stream, water up to the neck. You are completely at the mercy of the current at that point. You don't have the ability to walk. And the Lord will sift out the people of the nations. Those who are with the Lord he will gather to himself. And those who are against him are cast out. And verse 29. You shall have a song in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. God's people will burst forth in song with gratitude and joy, the gladness of heart, the sound of the flute as they skip and walk and run to the mountain of the Lord. And once again, the warning. Verse 30. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. God's amazing booming voice will be heard by all and his righteous judgment shall swiftly descend like a hailstorm before a torrential rain of a thunderstorm. And then Isaiah shifts slightly here, the last three verses. So verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And here it is. These are those whom this great destruction is intended for. It is against the Assyrians who are coming and carting off God's people to faraway lands, to be in exile. And in verse 32, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandish arm, he will fight with them. The sound of tambourines and lyres the sounds of joy and thanksgiving to God for his protection, the protection of God's people. And God will hold out his strong arm against the Assyrians, and God will do battle against Assyria. And here at the end is where I ran into the problem. Verse 33. So let me read to you, this is what it says in the ESV. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, 
like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. And this is the last verse. And this is where the texts diverge. You notice here that the ESV says, a burning place. Well, it turns out that in the Hebrew and in my NASB, which is a word-for-word translation here, it turns out that it actually names the place. The Hebrew actually has the name of the place. It's not just a burning place. The name of the place is Topheth. And not only is it prepared, it actually names the person who prepares the... It's named after a person who had prepared it originally. It turns out the name is Topheth. And Topheth is the word that's in the Hebrew. So, Topheth, the valley where this exists, was prepared originally by someone named the son of Hinnom. So Hinnom, his son, was the one who prepared the place. Now I want you to imagine this entire city of Jerusalem. What do they do with their trash? They take it to the south edge of the city where this valley, this valley that belonged to the son of Hinnom, and they throw the trash into this this valley. And in this valley, they burn the trash. Every society in the Far East is a caste society. And typically there are four castes. There are the administrators, then there are the farmers. Below them are the merchants. And finally there's a very bottom caste. And in many places in the Far East, those, that bottom caste are referred to as the untouchables. They don't exist. You don't talk to them, and they are the ones that carry off the trash. When someone dies in a home, everyone stands outside, and these people are the ones that come in to take away the body. They are the ones that touch the dead. They are the ones that prepare the body for burial. These are the untouchables. There are all the, you probably remember this in the Old Testament, where Moses is laying down the law, that you will not touch anything dead. And there are all sorts of rules and regulations about what is unclean, that if, what happens when, in the message of the Good Samaritan, right? The man gets beat up and he's laying in the road. What does the priest do? He walks around the other side of the road to not touch the dead body, because that's unclean. I remember when I was young, we went back to visit Japan. I was 11. And this is 1971, so you wouldn't think 1971, you know, would be all that, like, ancient in this way. And there was a cholera outbreak at that time. And they were actually having to drag some of the dead bodies and the bedding out into the street, and they would burn everything. 
in order to take care of the cholera. The people who would have to come in and do this in Japanese society are called the eka. And they are the untouchables. You don't talk to them. And I, I didn't know any different. You know, here's this American kid, and I, I'm trying to talk to this guy. And my mom is like horrified. You know, she's grabbing me by the arm and trying to, Mom, I'm just talking to this. She's dragging me away. It's like, and she has to explain all this to me, you know, and it's like, we don't have anybody, you know, the trash guy comes by at home, we talk to him, you know. You, you don't do that in Japan. The Jews were the same way. So I started digging up all my different translations that I had, and I had six of them. And four of them went one way and named Tophet as the name of this valley. And that the son of Hinnom is... This valley was prepared by the son of Hinnom. It existed there, and he was the one that took care of the dump, apparently. And that's what it was for. But the fact that these fires burned there continually, this is what they did with the bodies that didn't have a place to be buried. They would cast the bodies into this burning place. And this is what they refer to as Gehenna, or Sheol. This is the imagery that they use in the Old Testament to talk about hell for the Jews. And this is what Isaiah ends with in this passage where he's talking about the Assyrians, that this is where the Assyrians are going to end up. So, that's where our passage ends. So the question is, are we listening to God here? Do we hear Isaiah? How some things are difficult and uncomfortable to talk about. Places like Topheth. Are we seeing the little cracks in this? And hearing anew, God's calling out to us every day. So reminder, how are you doing on when your feet hit the floor in the morning, right? Who's the first one you talk to? Are you grumbling to yourself? Or are you talking to Jesus? My score this week? Okay? So that's a little better than last week. Still not great. I'm not even rating like a, a, that's a C minus to me. God's looking for an A plus. I'm a C minus. Isaiah is singing us this song of redemption. And implied in here is how God will redeem Israel and bring all of God's people to his holy mountain to worship him. If you step back just a moment and think about how this one chapter fits into the big picture that's going on here, you can see that. 
What does do, that do for the song that's in your heart? Isaiah is saying, don't do this. Follow after God. In fact, that comes out in the next message. This is the promise that God will be there in the end, that God is the only one who can save us. Jesus is the one who makes it possible. Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the bread and the cup. Isaiah is pointing us back to God, and he's saying, look at Jesus. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world, and he wants us to be more like Jesus. I know how I'm doing on that. And we become more Christ-like by thinking about this. I look at the chaos in the world again. You know, I, I, one of the last things I do in the evening is I check the news on my phone as I'm plugging my phone in to charge overnight. I need to stop doing that. I need to look at this last thing before I go to sleep. <laughs> God knows I'm not where I need to be yet. When I pray about what I need to work on. And I keep looking at the world. That's a difficult one. I looked at this message again. Wow. I look at the place of Topheth and the condemnation of those who are destined to be there forever. And this somehow serves God's righteousness. Ultimately, it serves God's greatness too. And his greatness will be there on that day for all of us to see. And we will all witness his greatness and his splendor on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so amazing and so great. You breathe the universe into existence. And this is where we live. And Lord, we live in the here and now with our finite bodies and our finite minds, it's all we know. And yet we know that there's something more. Lord, you've kept the words that Isaiah wrote down. You've handed those words down to us all these years for us to have. You've given them to us. And Lord, we keep looking away. We keep trying to save ourselves. We keep trying to, if we do this, if we just get our lives in order, this one thing, if we could just do this, then we'll be ready. And Lord, we continually fail. We look to Egypt. We look to the world. And you want us to hear you in Isaiah's words and how you continue to hold us in the palm of your hand even as we're trying to crawl out to do something else with the world. And you lovingly guide us and care for us. Heavenly Father, hide your word in our hearts. We read the words of your prophet Isaiah. 
Heavenly Father, carve his word down deep inside of us. Give us those hard lessons we must learn. Guide us in your perfect path that our feet would walk in the way that you direct. Your plan of redemption is so clear when we see it in Scripture. And yet, we still continue to try and smooth out the rock that you hand us. Jesus, you died in our place to redeem us, to save us. And Lord, you are so amazing. We love you, Lord. We bless you and honor you. We praise you, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.